Hello and welcome to Facing Race and Happy Black History Month. I'm your host, Layla Schultz-Sames, and on today's episode, we're going to be looking at white privilege and how we tackle it and what it really means. Stay tuned. So I was thinking about doing an episode on white privilege for a while, but I wasn't really sure where to start, and I also feel like it's a topic that can be a little bit complicated to discuss, and there's just a lot of different elements to unpack. So I I wanted to kind of look and start at the beginning and sort of examine the difference between racism and white privilege. And I know that we've talked, we've sort of defined and talked about racism a lot, of course, This podcast is called Facing Race, so it's definitely a topic that comes up a lot. But I think, you know, to begin with, having white privilege and recognizing it is not racist. And also calling people out on it is not offensive and it's not racist. But I think white privilege exists because of historic enduring racism and biases. Therefore, I think defining white privilege also requires finding working definitions of racism and bias. So again, if we're looking at the term racism, what is it exactly? So I I actually found one really helpful definition from Matthew Clare and Jeffrey Dennis uh, in their book, Sociology on Racism. And they define racism as individual and group level processes and structures that are implemented in the reproduction of racial inequality, end quote. On on top of that idea, I think that systematic systemic racism happens when these structures or processes are carried out by groups of power, right? So a lot of times those groups of power could be, I don't know, governments, businesses, schools, workplaces, etc., And racism definitely differs from bias, which I think a lot of it is is conscious or unconscious prejudice against it could be an individual or group. And of course, it's based on their identity. So essentially speaking, racial bias is a belief, right? Like racism is what happens when the belief translates into action, For example, right, a person might unconsciously or consciously believe that people of color are more likely to, I don't know, commit a crime or to be dangerous. And that's a bias. And a person might become really anxious if they perceive a black person is angry or they look angry. And that stems from a bias. And these biases can become racism through a number of actions ranging in severity, right? Ranging from individual to group level responses. So let's just say, for example, uh, maybe it might be something like a person is walking down the street and they cross the street to avoid walking next to a group of young black men, right? Or a person calls 911 to report the presence of a person of color who is otherwise behaving lawfully. I mean, we've seen this all the time on YouTube. The most recent one, right, was this girl. I think they they nicknamed her Soho Karen, right? She tackled a teenage boy because she thought that he stole her iPhone and she tried to get the police involved. And it turned out the Uber driver actually found it and, and all this stuff, right? It could be, for example, a police officer shoots an unarmed person of color because he feared for his life, but at the same time lets 
rioters come into the Capitol building. Or maybe it's a federal intelligence agency prioritizes investigating black or Latino activists rather than investigating white supremacist groups like the Proud Boys or or something like that. So both racism and biases rely on what sociologists would call racialization. And this is a grouping of people based on perceived physical differences like skin tone. And this arbitrary grouping of people historically fueled biases and became a tool for justifying the cruel treatment and discrimination of non-white people. So colonialism, slavery, and Jim Crow laws were all kind of sold with the pseudoscience and propaganda that claimed people of a certain race were fundamentally different from those of another and that they should be treated accordingly. And while not all white people, of course, participated directly in this mistreatment, their learned biases and their safety from such treatment, I think, led many to commit one of the most powerful, powerful actions. And that's that would be silence. And so just like that, I think the trauma, a lot of this displacement, this cruel treatment, this discrimination of people of color inevitably gave birth to white privilege. So. Okay, let's go to white privilege now and look at history, right? So I think that the this two-word term sort of packs a double whammy, right? And it inspires a lot of pushback because one, the word white creates discomfort among those who are not used to be defined or described by the race. And two, I think the word privilege, especially for poor rural white people sounds like a word that doesn't necessarily belong to them, like a word that suggests that they have not struggled in their life. And I think this defensiveness kind of derails the conversation, which means unfortunately that defining white privilege must often begin with defining what it's not. I think otherwise only kind of the the core group of people are going to listen. The people you actually want to reach out to are going to kind of tune out and be like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about this. So, okay, white privilege is not the suggestion that white people have never struggled. Many white people do not enjoy privileges that come from affluence, like food security, for example. Many do not experience privileges that come from access, such as nearby hospitals. And obviously, we see this in poor communities with COVID. A lot of them do not have access to things that that other wealthier white people have. And white privilege is not this assumption that everything a white person has accomplished is unearned. Because most white people who have reached a high level of success worked extremely hard to get there. Instead, I think it's good to say that white privilege should be viewed as kind of a built-in advantage separate from one's level of income or effort. So Frances Kendall, who's the author of Diversity in the Classroom and Understanding White Privilege, comes close to kind of, I think, giving us an encompassing definition, which is this, quote, having greater access to power and resources than people of color in the same situation is essentially what white privilege is, end quote. But I think in order to grasp what this means, it's also important to consider how the definition of white privilege has changed over time. And I think also, too, beginning to view white privilege as being more psychological, sort of a subconscious prejudice that's a lot of times perpetrated by 
white people's lack of awareness that they hold this power uh, because it's something that can be found in day-to-day transactions and it's sort of it can be seen in the way that white people can move through professional and, and personal worlds with a lot of ease right it's and again it's not to say that white people don't struggle of course that's not the case but some people of color I think continue to insist that an element of white privilege really affects you know us even in 2021 you know there's still a lot of uh, examples in work for example if a white business leader didn't hire many people of color uh, which is, is sometimes the case, you know, sometimes obviously there are certain programs that encourage hiring, you know, diverse people, but that doesn't always happen. So in a lot of sense, white people still do have more economic opportunities. And I think having the ability to, to maintain that power dynamic in itself is is a form of white privilege and it still continues. And of course, if we look at Congress, right, legislative bodies, corporate leaders, educators, they're still disproportionately white and they often make conscious choices, whether it's laws, hiring practices, discipline, procedures that sort of keep the cycle on repeat. And I think there's also the more complicated truth that white privilege is both unconsciously enjoyed and consciously perpetrated. It's a, I, I think it's something that it still continues to be an issue because it's both on the surface and it's also deeply embedded in the American lifestyle. So sometimes when looking at examples of white privilege, it's not always the big things, as I mentioned, right, like education or business or whatever. Sometimes there's also subtle versions of white privilege that are often used as sort of these comfortable, easy entry points for people who might push back against the concept. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And later on in the episode, I'm also going to be speaking with a really good friend of mine, Aaron, and we're sort of going to jump more into into the idea of, of, of white privilege and what it means. So again, I, to talk a little bit more about some examples, some everyday things, conveniences that white people maybe aren't forced to think about. Uh, I always think about the first aid kit. Right. And and there's always I remember as a kid, because a lot of times I was kind of clumsy and I would always scrape my knee or just, you know, kid stuff. And my mom always had a bunch of band-aids ready for for me and my sister. And there were always these flesh colored band-aids. Right. But flesh colored band-aids, obviously, nowadays it's starting to to change and they they have more of that. But back then, flesh colored band-aids really only matched the skin tone of white people, right? And that was something that you could easily find flesh-colored band-aids for, for example, my sister who was white. But I never had band-aids that matched my skin, you know? Or the products white people need for their hair being in the aisle that's labeled hair care rather than a smaller separate section of ethnic hair products. Or you have the grocery store stocking a variety of food options that reflect the cultural traditions of most white people, but maybe they don't have other things from different cultures. But I think 
The root of these problems, right, is often ignored. These types of examples can be dismissed by white people who might say, oh, but hey, you know, my hair is curly and and it requires a special product or my family's from Poland and it's hard to find traditional Polish food at the grocery store. And absolutely, I mean, this absolutely may be true. But the reason even these simple white privileges need to be recognized is that the damage goes beyond the inconvenience of shopping for goods and services. These privileges are symbolic of what we might call the power of normal. If public spaces and goods seem catered to one race and segregate the needs of people of other races in the special sections, that indicates something beneath the surface. And I think that sometimes white people become more likely right to to move through the world with an expectation that their needs are readily met right like they can always find band-aids they can always find food that meets their needs right but people of color move through the world knowing that their needs are on the margins right that recognizing this means that recognizing gaps actually exist and that there are still there are still problems. So the, this idea, I think, of the power of normal kind of goes beyond CVS or Target or, or any of those stores. White people are also more likely to see positive portrayals of people who look like them on the news, on TV shows and movies. And they're more likely to be treated as individuals rather than as representatives of or exceptions to a stereotyped racial identity. Basically, I'm trying to say in other words that they are often they're more often humanized and I think granted the benefit of the doubt. And they're more likely to receive compassion. I would say maybe more likely to be granted individual, I don't know, abilities to survive mistakes. If they do something wrong, they're not going to be say, oh, well, yeah, that's because you and all black people do this or you and all Latino people do that, right? And so a lot of this stuff adds up. I think a lot of this has negative effects for people of color who really without this privilege face the consequences of racial profiling, profiling, stereotypes, and lack of compassion, right, for their struggles. So in these scenarios, I think white privileges, white privilege in general includes the fact that a couple things. One, White people are less likely to be followed, to be interrogated, to be searched by law enforcement because they look suspicious. Uh, white people's skin tone will not be a reason people hesitate to trust them or, you know, give them a mortgage or something like that. If a white person is accused of a crime, generally they're less likely to be presumed guilty. They're less likely to be sentenced to death. And they're more likely to be portrayed in a fair, nuanced manner by most media outlets. Uh, I I think on a side note, if you check out, there's a campaign that hashtag if they gun me down. That's really interesting. And that has just some interesting things to check out. So essentially, as I was saying, the personal faults or missteps of white people will likely not be used to later deny opportunities or compassion to people who share their racial identity. And this privilege is invisible to many white people because it seems reasonable that a person should be extended compassion as they move through the world. It seems logical, right, that a person should have the chance to prove themselves individually before they are judged because that's, I don't know, that's the American way. But it's a privilege that's often not granted to people of color, and that's the problem. And I think just looking, for example, New York's 
I know it's now abandoned, but New York stop and frisk policy, right? I mean, that targeted a disproportionate number of black and Latino people. And people of color are more likely to be arrested for drug offenses, despite using at a really similar rate to white people. We've talked about this in past episodes. And some people do not actually survive these stereotypes because we know obviously that people of color who are unarmed and not attacking people are more likely to be killed by police than than white people. So those who survive a lot of these instances of racial profiling, whether it's subtle or, or violent, do not go unaffected, right? They often suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is a type of trauma that's going to affect them for a long time. Uh, there's actually a study conducted in Australia, which of course has its own history of, of Black and Indigenous people, that actually really illustrates how white privilege can manifest in day-to-day interactions, which is really, you know, a daily reminder that one is not necessarily worthy right of the same benefit of doubt giving given to another person but anyway in the experiment people of different racial and ethnic identities tried to board public buses telling the driver that they didn't have enough money to pay for the ride researchers documented more than 1500 attempts and the result was that 72 percent of white people were allowed to stay on the bus only 36% of black people were extended the same kindness. So just as people of color really did nothing to deserve this unequal treatment, white people didn't really earn disproportionate access to compassion and fairness. They just receive it as kind of a byproduct of systemic racism and bias. And even if they're not aware of it in their daily lives as they walk you know, down the street, to the store, etc., this privilege is the result of conscious choices made a long time ago and choices still being made today. For example, there is a survey I found online and some of the questions are as follows. They say, whether I use checks, credit card, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. Interesting. Or I can arrange to protect my children most of the time from people who might not like them. Or this, I think, is a big one. I can criticize our government and talk about how much I fear its policies and behavior without being seen as a cultural outsider and not patriotic. I can pretty, I can be pretty sure that if I ask to talk to a person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race, of my own race. I am never asked to speak for all people of my racial group. So these are just, again, some examples, right? And I think as we look at all of this and as we examine white privilege, there's a couple what I like to call do's and don'ts. Um, Number one, I think do be open, right, to start the conversation with others who are interested and willing to learn, even if they don't understand. Uh, Also share fact-checked resources, examples, information, statistics. Uh, Try to keep cool. You know, it can be a really heated topic, obviously. Um, So just try to, you know, engage in in a calm way possible. And then I would say don't make assumptions. Just because someone is white doesn't mean they haven't faced challenges, right? Don't get into heated arguments. I I think it's also important to do homework as well. So 
don't expect people of color to always be there to like educate you and and tell you like oh this is what you should check out or this is what you should do I think it's also important to to do your own work as well so there's a lot to do there's definitely a lot to do but again this is just kind of talking about some steps you know moving forward that I think could be helpful for people So to find more information on this topic, there are two really good books. Uh, one is Understanding White Privilege by Francis Kendall, and another is White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And of course, there's a lot of great websites to check out as well. So today, as I mentioned earlier, I am really excited to have a guest. She's a dear friend of mine who I met several years ago in Boston, and Erin is and always has been really passionate about social issues and making a difference. And she's also one of my white friends. I would say that I, I feel like I can always be 100% honest and upfront about race and a lot of those issues. And we've always had really amazing, deep conversations. So anyways, I love this girl and I can't wait to talk to her. So let's go to the phone and she w- see what she has to say. Welcome to Facing Race. Thank you so much for joining us today. I thought we could just get started by having you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Um, My name's Erin O'Donnell. Um, I live in Los Angeles and I work in education and global health related to hearing. Nice. Um, And my background uh, initially has always been in nonprofits, um, mm-hmm. but it did start out working in education, focusing on reducing dropout rates, first of all, in grade school, uh, reducing high school dropout rates. And then I moved also into working uh, in the college system as a career counselor and focusing on college persistence um, and trying to increase graduation rates amongst students who were first generation to go to college. Um, but more personally, my background uh, is pretty cross-cultural. I grew up, was well, I was born in Holland and moved around a lot before coming to the States for college at age 18. Um, so yeah, I've had a, a lot of experiences in different countries and different cultures mm-hmm. um, and with different languages as well. A little bit of everything. I like it. A little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. So As you know, today's episode, I'm talking a lot about white privilege and racial bias. A lot of these issues, obviously, because the podcast is called Facing Race, obviously, I tackle a lot of that, that type of stuff. So I I just sort of wanted to get your take and your opinion on uh, some of these topics and sort of starting with white privilege. Obviously, it's a term that uh, a lot of people are sort of, you know, when they hear it, it's sort of like, ah, you know, it triggers them a bit. So I was curious to to hear from you. Why do you think that a lot of people get triggered by this this term white privilege? Sure. Um, yeah, that's definitely a question that I think about quite a bit, actually. Um, there are just a lot of words and terms uh, in the vernacular right now um, and anything related to race and having a discussion seems to trigger trigger any number of folks. I'll just say that again. Anything related to race and having a constructive dialogue around that seems to trigger 
um, bunch a bunch of people. It's, mm-hmm. It can be difficult to talk about these things. Um, it's something I certainly have had to practice. Um, it didn't just come naturally, although I would argue yes. maybe it did a bit more naturally to me because of my cross-cultural background and being in, you know, settings that were pretty international and very diverse in a number of, of ways. Um, but yeah, white privilege specifically, I think, you know, right now there's so much polarity and um, we're in this place politically and socially where what needs to be constructive dialogue often turns into these diatribes. Um, yes. And when people are entering a space of a diatribe, there's a lot of a lot of feelings. So, you know, it can it can feel like there's this divide and the way communication is happening is sort of, you know, shooting across, shooting cannons across a battlefield, like this trench warfare. Yeah. And ultimately everybody ends up feeling sort of obliterated in the process. Um, you know, and I use this image of this, you know, previous form of, of warfare pretty intentionally because it is antiquated. It's not going to move us forward as a society. Um, and so I think that in the process of, of talking about white privilege, um, there's maybe a lack of awareness around what it actually means. And so if you have those who aren't familiar with this term or who are more conservative, um, it can feel like some of these terms are maybe cutting them out of the dialogue um, or intentionally pointing fingers at them or, or even making a, a blanket statement like because you are white, you are privileged without recognizing um, that there are maybe ways in which just being a human and holding multiple identities <laughs> means that you are not going to be privileged in every identity. So um, even though we're talking about white privilege, those who are white at times may not hear that we're talking about whiteness. We're just talking about privilege in general. And so all of these other feelings around, well, you know, I was raised poor or I didn't get the education that I wanted to have, or I was raised, you know, in a single parent household mm-hmm. um, or whatever else is a different identity that isn't privileged, you know, they might not feel seen. And so I think to create a container where actual conversation that moves us forward can happen there needs to be safety and there needs to be recognition of the whole person so a person needs to feel seen you need to feel seen to feel safe so when entering these conversations you know instead of jumping right to the heart of it with all this emotional fiery passion um certainly myself as a white person i take a step back and i ask questions and i try to adopt a different approach because that's how you're going to be heard. Um, and that's how understanding is going to happen. I agree with that. I think you make a lot of really good points. And I think it it's true that what you said about we are very multifaceted people. So it's like we sort of check a lot of different boxes. So it's like, okay, someone might be white and that might be one privilege that they experience, but they also might, they have other identities and other parts of themselves that maybe, you know, they're not always going to be in a position of privilege. Uh, There's a lot, I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I think also what you mentioned too, about asking questions, (laughs) I think that's sometimes stepping back and and listening as well, I think can be really important for people. 
And I think that doesn't always happen. So that's, I mean, I think that's, that's a big part of it for sure. Um, but how, how would you, I don't know, how do you think the term white privilege, how would you sort of define that? Because I think sometimes people get sort of caught up to a lot in terminology and, and definitions. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, someone might hear white privilege and just think it's privilege because they're white and that's Mm -hmm. it. And that doesn't make sense to them. Maybe they're struggling, you know, and they feel like their story doesn't matter somehow. Um, But yeah, just very simply, uh, I just define it as due to skin color, due to being white, having an unearned advantage. Mm and that doesn't mean that your advantage in every area of your life because you're white Absolutely. just means that having white skin has meant certainly in my case for example if i go speak to one to a manager and i have some grievance most of the time that person has been another white person so Absolutely. there's already something there that is that feels common or safe like maybe they'll understand my background more maybe they're already on my team and, and it shouldn't be that way, but in a society that's so polarized, I, you know, <laughs> you it don't know what is. somebody's thoughts politically or what their background or level of understanding may be. So things as simple as that really help, you know, you to have this unearned advantage. You know, I didn't earn this advantage. I was just born with it. I can't change my mm-hmm. skin color. I was just born with it. Um, yes. And it is harder to maybe explain to those who don't even believe, you know, in institutional racism or other kinds of racism that having white skin is an advantage. I mean, there are those who are completely in denial. So that's that's tougher. You know, you have to know who your audience is and start from the beginning. And starting from the beginning may not be talking about white privilege. It's a very loaded term for some people. Um, it may be starting really with the basics. Um, Baby steps. Really, very much, yes, assessing and starting at something <laughs> far more rudimentary. Yes, I think sometimes it's it's definitely a hard conversation to have. And I think especially, yeah, like you said, for people that maybe don't see it or don't believe in it, you can't quite just jump into that. There's a lot of other points and conversations I think that need to be had before reaching reaching that that point. Uh, for sure. And I know you mentioned, for example, you said if you were to speak with a manager, odds are that the manager would be, you know, probably someone that looked like you, maybe similar background. Uh, do you have, have you had other experiences where you feel like as a white person, you've been in a position of privilege that maybe a person of color wouldn't have been? Um, definitely. Gosh, okay. I mean, I think we hear this a lot right now, thinking about safety and how mm-hmm. can people feel like they can c- present their whole self, you know, within yes. the workplace um, or even just safety in public places uh, in general. You know, even as a woman, I have felt very safe. And I, mm-hmm. not to take this too much into the personal realm, but Um, In one of my previous relationships, it was an interracial relationship and it was so heartbreaking to feel like walking, walking home. He asked if I would come walk him 
And mm-hmm. that just totally broke my heart because, you know, this was a strong man who normally was protective of me. And when a lot of different things were blowing up that summer, <laughs> um, yes. and there was a lot of, you it's know, a lot tension, a lot of racial tension going on, uh, certainly, you know, between police forces and communities of color, um, certainly the perception of it. And so I, I was sort of, you know, a skinny white woman, <laughs> the bodyguard, that's what <laughs> it felt like. And yeah, that totally broke my heart. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I remember too, yeah, that time was definitely when Black Lives Matter was, well, it had been going on for a couple of years, but I definitely feel like a lot, a lot was happening, you know, during that time frame. And there's obviously a lot of tension and I think it sort of, it was making people, yeah, think about everything that was going on and sort of think about get their privileges or their situations. So I think that's a, that's a really good example. And it is, like you said, it's really heartbreaking. Unfortunately, that's still something, yeah, that's something that comes up, but um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a big thing for sure. So do you think that um, in looking at where we are today, I mean, obviously it's 2021, And I think, you know, given what happened last spring, people really started having conversations. They sort of went out and bought books and attended, you know, online trainings or lectures or or a lot of different things to sort of, I think, educate themselves, right, about race and and privilege and how they, you know, benefit from the system. So do you feel like we are sort of moving in a really positive direction when it comes to having like these dialogues about white privilege and white mm. you know white issue black and white issues or really in general I absolutely think we're headed in the right direction um and I also see it as a long journey and we're still we've come a long way, but we're still (laughs) very much at the beginning, maybe the beginning of the middle. I mean, I, I really don't know, Uh, but just the fact that this has, this conversation has entered the public consciousness and is there with more saliently. It's really, it really is, you know, a step in the right direction. However, um, I do think that sometimes the way this conversation is being had is actually further alienating those who need mm, to hear it the most. Um, and I, know I, I kind of mentioned that, you know, at the beginning, just talking about dialogue versus diatribe. Yes. Um, yes. But I do see that hmm, <laughs> a lot of what could be constructive conversation kind of devolves into this dichotomy, you know, of us versus them. And there are a lot of people who want to feel a sense of belonging. So these movements, either very progressively on the left or more on the right, have a lot of followers. And, you know, there's a slate of beliefs and you either agree with all of them or you're cast out and you're seen as being part of the other camp. So it's very extreme Mm -hmm. and that doesn't leave a lot of space for nuance. Um, And the issue with truth is that as simple as we want it to be, we want it to be like X, Y, Z, this is true. Believe this, follow through with this, take action on this. Boom. You know, this is the way forward. Mm -hmm. You know, society, people 
all everything that's happening is so much more complex. Truth is complex. It really and is. there's a lot of nuance to it. And without holding space for questions, because if you question something, suddenly, you know, you're demonized <laughs> as being part of the other <laughs> camp, as it were. Um, so without holding space for questions, we can't really incorporate, I think, you know, the complexity that needs to come into the discussion that's going to lead to far more informed policies um, and and just take into account, I guess, how, how layered <laughs> um, all of these problems are. Um, so I think that bringing these discussions into, you know, the, the public dialogue has opened the eyes of a lot of people, really made them think about where, where they stand, What's happening? you know, where, how have they helped support white supremacy, you know, unwittingly even, what is their responsibility to dismantle that? What does it mean to be anti-racist, you know, and, and that, that is something that is, a title that you get for stepping up each day. Um, it's not mm -hmm. just your views, it's about your actions. Um, and those are actions, you know, that you must sustain. So part of the issue- Con Right, continual actions. Continual yeah, actions is that I think people go through phases of development. And so we're seeing those who are just coming into, into this anti-racism at the very beginning stages of the development. And you have to go through all of these stages, but it does start, I, I think, with um, something like white guilt. <laughs> you uh -huh. know, you uh -huh. have this awareness, you have to handle your white guilt. And the issue with white guilt is that, again, that is another one of those terms that is somewhat loaded. It can be triggering. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and the other issue with it is that it's not sustainable. So if you're starting to to participate and, um, you know, you go out, you are supporting Black Lives Matter, you are protesting, you are sharing information with friends, you're examining yourself. Um, so not just being, you know, not just doing this um, in order to be seen publicly <laughs> as being on the right side of history, but <laughs> you actually are take, you know, grappling um, on a deeper level with all that you're learning, that that is great. But the issue with white guilt is that it, in and of itself, it is not sustainable. So if that is your motive to go out and to make a change, then you're going to suddenly feel justified, you know, like, okay, I was guilty. I've done something about it. I feel more redeemed. Um, I no longer have that guilt. It's healed. <laughs> and then, Check. and then you kind of fall <laughs> off. And so that's what we're starting to see. We're seeing people who feel like they've dealt with it and, and they have, They've just started, you know, that journey, um, but we need it to be sustained. It needs to keep going. Um, and I think eventually what that will look like, and we're also starting to see this, is people who can set aside their passion and really ask, you know, if I'm going to be a teacher and teach others who think differently from me uh, about what what the heart of this movement is and why it matters and why it matters to them and why they need to be a part of it if things are going to change to move toward a more unified, fair, just society. Um, okay, where was I going with that? 
Well, I think one thing on, on white guilt that I, I definitely agree with a lot of what you said, because I felt like I was seeing that last spring and summer with a lot of the, you know, everything going on with the, the protesting is I would I would get a lot of friends. Obviously, it's, you know, I have a lot of white friends and I would get a lot of, you know, messages and even messages from people I hadn't talked to in years. And they were sort of like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I can't believe some of the stuff that's been going on. Oh, my gosh. Did you know about police brutality? Oh, did you know about this? And it was sort of like, you know, I I, I think that people, a lot of people genuinely have, you know, their hearts in the right place and they want to make a difference. And they, you know, they do want to examine themselves and they want to stand up for what's right. But I also feel like, yeah, sometimes with white guilt, it's sort of like, oh, I feel so bad. I feel so bad about being white. Like, I have to apologize to you as, like, the, the only Black person I know. Like, I'm so sorry, Layla, for, for being white. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot that, that you can do, you know, that's that's sort of, you have to sort of look in, to the next steps, you know? And I think also a lot of people mm-hmm. were sort of coming to me, asking me, okay, what can I do? What can I do? What should I do? And I think a lot of it also is like, you know, you have to be willing to educate yourself mm-hmm. as well. And that has to want to come from the person, you know, to, to look for ways to to educate themselves and and, you know, find a way to sustain that type of interest or, or, or passion. So it can be hard. I get it. It can be really hard. It's a challenge mm-hmm. for sure. You know, Absolutely. But. And, you know, if a white person, if as a white person, you're not moving past a place of of, you know, anger and taking up this as almost as if you know this is your own fight then you're not going to be able to actually help the very people you are purporting to help because you're yes. going to be putting the burden once again on people of color to explain everything <laughs> because none of your yeah. white friends or people in your extended family or whoever the case whoever it is none of them are going to be able to speak with you and so somebody else probably a person person of color will have to take on that burden of educating which has been far too long, you know, a place that we have been stuck in. Um, and so, you know, part of the issue, I think also it, with young people who are, you know, social justice warriors and they've adopted the, the wokest ideology, you know, and it's a hill that they're going to die on. And I'm talking about young white people. Mm-hmm. Yes. By doing that, like I said, once again, it's leaving those more cordial, common sense conversations to black people to have with white people. Um, But also there is this, they can be making it about themselves Um, and they're taking pain, which does not belong to them. And they're kind of adopting it as their own, which is one sort of diminishes the levels and the extent to which there is multi-generational trauma for a lot of people of Mm -hmm. color. Um, Mm -hmm. it's assuming that they can understand that. And also, you know, it's just not going to communicate a message that will bring others into the fold. Um, yeah. It's just not beneficial. (laughs) Yeah. It's not really a beneficial way to go, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I feel like it can be, yeah, it can be a challenge for a lot of people that are sort of just beginning I think on this journey because I feel like you for example obviously you know you've always been really interested and invested in a lot of this stuff uh, but people are at different points you know there's sort of some people are just starting out some Mm -hmm. people are sort of maybe 
you know, they've been interested, but they don't really know how to get involved. So I guess one question I had for you is what sort of advice do you have for people? I guess I'm also speaking particularly for for other white Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. that do want to get involved. They do want to, you know, become educated about these issues. What do you think are some things that they could do besides, you know, just running to their nearest person of color and be like, hey, help me, like, what do I need to know? What should I watch? What should I read? That type of thing, you know? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, So I think reading as much as they can, but sources, picking sources with discretion. Um, Mm -hmm. So... I mean, I hate to say this. Actually, I don't hate to say it. Never mind. But <laughs> you can say one book that's been really, really popular um, and just touted as, you know, this go-to resource is Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. Um, yep. But, you know, I think that this is overly homogenizing whites. We already do that enough. She's kind of trying to extrapolate her own experience of being somewhat ignorant to her own privilege. And she's trying to broad brushstrokes sort of paint that over all white people I don't think it's the most hopeful the most helpful literature um it's it's really not particularly didactic it's preachy um she makes some very broad sweeping claims that I'm not sure are even true so I would say you know learn from the facts go straight to the facts don't go to the opinion pieces that are presented as fact um read books like the new Jim Crow you know compare your Mm -hmm. reality that's a great one Exactly. Compare your reality to the reality that is presented. And from that, you know, draw your own conclusions and start with that. Start with with actual factual narratives, because there are so many um, resources out there that are based on opinions. And, you know, we would it's a disservice just to assume that everybody is the same. We are, like you said, multidimensional beings and we're all in different places of our development. Um, so that's one thing reading as much as you can, I think, you know, trying, you don't have to ask a ton of questions to people of color, but try to build a more diverse friendship group, you know, even in Mm -hmm. this polarized setting, like understand that so much more unites us than divides us. And there is friendship, like amazing friendship to be had and it will just enrich your life, you know, and your experiences, um, and, and start with that, <laughs> start with being around people of all different backgrounds, um, suspending judgment, um, and just being more open as a person and then find yep. maybe yep. a white person who isn't going to be, you know, like a powder keg <laughs> who wants to have these conversations and is maybe a little bit further down the path of their conscious development around these issues um, and have conversations with them. Um, you know, it's my pleasure to do that. I'm, I'm still learning, right? This is, this is right. the path you know, that yeah. you are on until you die. You never reach, you know, the end, it's the end target. Um, I believe that. It's about yeah, I think growing, always, always growing and increasing your understanding. Um, and then as you start to learn things, the last thing I'd say is try to think about, obviously you're going to become angry and impassioned, um, but think about whether just, whether 
you know, who, who are you serving? Is this for some sense of more moral superiority? You know, do you have a sense of righteous indignation? Because if you do, you're not going to be effective at communicating. So, you know, you're a teacher. So I think about pedagogy and if truly Mm -hmm. you are a good teacher, which is what we need, (laughs) um, we need white people to be better teachers. And um, if you're a good teacher, you're not thinking about, you know, your philosophy and your way of teaching and and being rigid about that because it's the right way. Um, You're thinking about how, how best can I serve my students? You have this heart of service. How best can I teach? Like, how do I need to change how I communicate? How do I need to tweak my classroom so that they retain and learn as much as possible? And if we could take that same mentality and apply it to conversations around race, um, I think we would really be doing ourselves a huge favor. I like that. I like that a lot. And I think also to the, the, I like the point, especially made about the friends. I think that's something that's really hard for a lot of people, particularly white people. And I think that's something that could be really good. Not just getting more friends of color, though. I, you know, I definitely think about, Obviously, I have a lot of white friends, and I think the majority of them they they only have one black friend, mm-hmm. which should be me. Obviously, not you're you're not the the case here, but I think not just like getting people that are you know different races, but just surrounding yourself with diverse thought, mm-hmm. you know, diverse culture, uh, religion, etc. I think that's a really really important thing for people, and I think we don't always do that. Uh, so. I think that's that's big. So, yeah, and I think there's a lot of we're always kind of on on that journey <laughs> and we're always on that path and we all have a lot a lot a lot to learn. So, really good good advice, Erin. <laughs> really good advice. <laughs> you know, it's always it's always a pleasure speaking with you because you always have really good ideas and I don't know, we just always have really good discussions and and good conversations. So, I feel like you know, it's a good example of how things can be like it doesn't you can have these discussions with people and it doesn't have to be craziness and yelling and people getting offended and just, you know, all that mm-hmm. crazy drama, you know, more conversation. Yeah, have. so that's the, absolutely, that's the absolutely. And just using language um, that isn't I mean, I don't want to say politically correct, but there are there are terms that are not understood by all. And so, (laughs) you know, if you're automatically using that lingo, you're making somebody else feel like an outsider and then they can't participate. And those are the people who need to participate in this conversation and have felt like maybe they can't. Uh, And so then you just start to hate the conversation to begin with, you know, nobody Um, wins, right? Nobody wins. So, you know, just speaking with grace, and poise, not walking on eggshells, but also, you know, not, not, um, <laughs> I guess, you know, becoming armed with a lot of terms that aren't, that aren't yet explained or understood. Mm-hmm. We need to have, we need to start with language that is common to everyone and then start to introduce those terms, um, as you go. I agree. I think that's great. 
Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on and having a conversation with me about it. Obviously, you're welcome to come back anytime. We have a ton of issues always to discuss. So we could do another we could do another episode again sometime about a different topic. Uh, anything really. I'm always open. <laughs> I love <laughs> you that. Have a lot to, you have a lot to share. So yes, I appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks, Layla. It was great speaking with you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay, it's that time of the episode. It's time for Ask a Black Friend. Okay, so today's question is regarding white privilege. Can you still have white privilege if you grew up poor, uh, particularly poor and white? Are you still necessarily benefiting from white privilege? Well, I think that's an interesting question. And... The most obvious answer is yes, right? I think that sometimes, as I sort of mentioned at the beginning of the episode, people sort of push back, right, when they hear the idea of of privilege. And, you know, for me, as someone that that grew up in, obviously, in, in a mostly white area, I grew up, though, around people, white people that were not rich, right? I grew up in working class and lower class uh, areas, and so... This idea of that, oh, you know, we're we're privileged. You know, I think if I said that to people from my town, they would sort of laugh or say, no, 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 we're not privileged. But I think a lot of times people sort of identify privilege as something that's connected to socioeconomic. And the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of different privilege, right? There's the privilege of straight privilege, right? Being a straight person, there's having a privilege, uh, the privilege of growing up in a household with two parents with college degrees or even growing up with two parents. So there's a lot of different uh, things to look at when we say privilege. And so really, the truth of the matter is that, yes, if you're white, even if you're poor, there there's certain privileges that you are going to to have that people of color will not have. Right. So. Even when we looked at uh, the whole thing with Colin Kaepernick and a lot of people said, well, what is he complaining about? Yeah, he's black, but he makes way more money than than I do. Well, yeah, that's that's true. Obviously, he has certain privileges that poor white people don't. But as a white person, the privileges that white people have, it doesn't even matter if the black person has money. There's just certain things that they're still going to have. So, for example... Something like going into a store and not being followed. It's like it doesn't matter if you're a black person. You have a ton of money. A lot of black people, if they go to certain places, they're still going to be looked at. They're still going to be followed around. Or if you're driving, if you're a white person and you drive and you get pulled over for a ticket, odds are you're not thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to get shot, right? But that's something that black people, even black people with money, that might be a concern. They just don't know what's going to happen. So that is white privilege and it's not something that is going to be connected to wealth and again of course there are certain privileges that wealthy people let's say somebody like oprah obviously she has a lot of privileges and she's black and she's a woman but again there's certain things that she's even going to have to deal with even as a wealthy black person that poor white people might not have to deal with so i think that's the the big big thing the big difference so I, I would like to end this this episode. I know we talked about a lot of different things, but I'd like to end this episode with a quote, as I usually do. 
And it says, when you have only ever experienced privilege, equality feels like oppression. And that was a quote by Adam Rutherford. And I really like this quote because I think it's true. I think if you get used to having things a certain way, it's really hard to change. So I think that's something that we all have to work on because we all get really comfortable and we're comfortable if things work in our favor. We're comfortable if we don't really have to change or if we don't have to be inconvenienced. But sometimes we have to look at the bigger picture and realize just because something's working for us doesn't mean that it's working for everybody else. So that's all for today. For today. Thank you for so much for listening and thanks to to Erin for her insight and I look forward to seeing you all next week.